This podcast is sponsored by FHE Health and their Shatterproof Program for First Responders. I love it when a clinician comes on the show that has a law enforcement background, along with clinical experience, as does my next guest. Rebecca Allenton is on the show. Now, she did many years in law enforcement, a lot of them in Australia before she came to the United States. Then she pivoted and became a clinician, and she's one of the most sought-after first responder clinicians out there. She is also a presenter. She is the Director of Mental Health and Wellness at The Badge Group, and she is also the Director of Mental Health and Wellness at the Colorado FOP, or the Fraternal Order of Police. Now, in this show, Rebecca and I do something different that you don't see a lot with clinicians. Rebecca goes into her personal struggles from the past that led her to the person she is today. One amazing woman doing so much good for so many first responders out there. Rebecca Allenson, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Patrick here, host and creator of the top-ranked CJ Evolution Podcast. Top-ranked because of you, the listener and supporter. Thank you so much. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Long-time listener, welcome back. A big shout-out to you the first responder, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you for doing it. Remember this, you were honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Keep up the great work. You know, the next guest, Rebecca Allenson, is is so doing so much great work as a speaker, presenter, director of clinical services. I mean, she is amazing. And my point in all that is if you are struggling right now, if you are struggling like many of us do, please reach out. Shatterproof and their first responder program at FHE Health is here for you. Is here for you. And it's no BS, folks. You have to do something if you are struggling. You can stay in the lane you're in or you can take a chance and get off that highway you're on because it's not leading. If you're struggling, it's not leading to anywhere good. So pick up the phone today. Give me a ring. All calls are confidential. 303-960-9819. Let us help you get back to the person you want to be that you were before. Call today. Now a word from my good friend, Jimmy Keefe. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go.
Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to have this next guest on the show, Rebecca Allenson. She is a licensed clinician. She is a retired police officer of 18 years. She's the director and a clinician of the Badge Group. And she's also the director of mental health and wellness for the Colorado FOP. And FOP, for those people who don't know, is the Fraternal Order of Police. Rebecca, thank you for coming on, my friend. Mm, thanks, Patrick, for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, you had more stuff in your background, but I was like, gee, do I name all this stuff? Nicoletti Flatter, which is a big uh, uh, psychological firm in, in Denver. I remember doing my first first psychiatric or psychiatric psychology screening. Is that what it is? Psychological screening? Pre, like pre-employment. Pre-employment yes. screening with uh, yeah. Nicoletti. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know his daughter, Sherry Nicoletti. I don't know if you know Sherry uh, Nicoletti, but uh, anyway, rambling. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> many people I represent and have relationships and contracts with several organizations. So it can be a little confusing, but. Rebecca, where are you from? I, I detect a little. I could make a joke and say <laughs> Nebraska, but that Alaska. Be... Are you from Alabama? Um, <laughs> no, uh, a little further south. Hello, <laughs> Rebecca. We were just we were just joking before we started. You're from uh, Australia, Sydney, Australia. Yes, I've been here for twenty-one glorious years in the United States, all in Denver, Colorado. But I hail from. The place of beautiful beaches and chill people and all good stuff. What well, what made you? I now you were in law enforcement in Australia. I was, yeah, so, yeah. I was a police officer in with the New South Wales Police Department. We only have state police agencies in Australia, and um, I was posted in Sydney, of course. And I served six years in that uh, police department here before migrating to the U.S. and then did my remaining 12 years here in the Colorado area. Oh, that's amazing. Now, what's the, what's one of the, what are some of the big differences between, I mean, policing is policing, I imagine, you know, everywhere in the world. I mean, you're out there and you're investigating and stuff like that and, and arresting people. But what, what's one of the biggest difference between policing in Australia as opposed to the United States? Yeah, I would say, um, it's not as much of a distinction now because I think we're at a time post George Floyd, right, where there's a lot of negative police rhetoric and community lack of support and as a result, right, so we don't love our cops the way we used to love our cops. Yeah. But I would say the biggest difference was when I first left Australia, it just felt like you were hitting your head up against a brick wall. Like the court system, the judges didn't believe you. They were more likely to say, well, we believe the defendant and not this police officer. The fines, the the jail terms, whatever, right? The, the, the consequence, the punishment, the computative component was not supported. And so it just felt like you're doing all this work to keep the community safe. The community doesn't appreciate it. And then people just get out yeah. uh, immediately and recommit. Um, reoffend and so the dream was to be in a place where law enforcement was more respected and you know there was you know appropriate punishment and but we're moving away from that now yeah. Pat you know the yeah. the changing lens of law enforcement right yeah yeah now what made you get into law enforcement what was the catalyst behind that I mean you know 
decide, okay, I, <clears throat> I want a, a career. Did you come, did you have family or come from a law enforcement family or what, what was the reason you got into it? No, I'm, I think I'm kind of an anomaly. A lot of people end up in this job, right, with yeah. family or friends. You know, I was an 18-year-old kid, you know, sports captain at school, Catholic upbringing, straight A, never got in trouble. And I saw a commercial on television. They were looking for, they were recruiting for police officers. And I thought to myself, that looks like a cool job. It looks like something where I'd be doing something different every day. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll throw my hat in the ring for that. And I kid you not, <laughs> within two years, I'd been to like babies in microwaves, multiple suicide oh. calls. I mean, I had like so much trauma in the first two years. Yeah. And then you just can't unsee what you've seen. Yeah. 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 So, and then know. you move, you move from law enforcement, you come to the United States, you move, you do some time over here, and you come from law enforcement, and then you move into the clinical realm, which you're one of the most sought after clinicians out there for first responders. How did that happen? I mean, obviously you mentioned Rebecca, I mean, ever all the cops out there, we see horrible things, but how did you make the jump from law enforcement or what was the reason from law enforcement to be now being a very popular, I mean, doing work for FOP and, and other organizations and, and talking to just tons of first responders what made you go that direction you know it was i i had always wanted to in the last couple of years of being in law enforcement as a police officer i yeah. i had always had an interest in the clinical role i thought mm -hmm. maybe it would be good go back to school help in a different way because i felt like after 18 years i just felt like i had done what i was set out to do in my specific role uh, unfortunately, or now I can say fortunately, I had a breakdown, yeah. really is the truth. So the last probably several years working in the job, I was working a cold case homicide unit, high profile cold case homicide case, and, um, you know, was drinking as many police officers do daily to try and sleep, to try and moderate, to try and calm my nervous system, thinking that I could control it. And I think the amalgamation of two things happened. I had a pivotal point in time, a literal line of demarcation where I had an experience and I recognized that I could no longer understand, tolerate, conceptualize, grasp the horrors that human beings do to other human beings. Yeah. And that kind of like segued or sectioned with heavy drinking trauma symptoms began to arise which just increased the drinking and in 2014 I found myself reaching out to my agency voluntarily mm -hmm. to say I needed help and unfortunately like many people still in this profession I was put on a performance plan told I couldn't get time off provided no help required to sign a release of information so that my agency could specifically ask my therapist what was going on and ended up having a nervous breakdown and leaving with no support. Yeah. And sadly that stuff is still happening. So once I spent, I needed to get sober. I need to acknowledge my alcoholism, acknowledge my complex post-traumatic stress, start working on myself clinically to 
get sober, stay sober and deal with the trauma. And then it became very clear my path was to provide some type of resources, information, some of the insights I think that I had learned about my experience with alcoholism and trauma. Mm -hmm. So it was just segued into completing my clinical um, counseling hours to become an addictions counselor first. Then once my brain was kind of repaired enough and I could handle a master's program, I started my master's in clinical counseling and now I'm continuing. I'm doing a PhD in psychology. So Amazing. And you, you do, thank you for, for sharing that Rebecca. Um, Now you do substance abuse counseling, EMDR, which uh, a lot of people are familiar with and we'll hit that in a minute. Um, neurotherapist and neurostimulation, yes. which I've been through neurostimulation. Um, can you talk about that? First, first talk about for, for the listener out there who might not know, maybe they've heard of neurofeedback, uh, but what is neurostimulation? Yeah. So I think a lot of people, you're right, Pat, they've heard of neurofeedback. And so neurostimulation is kind of a cousin to neurofeedback. It's in the same family, but the treatment itself is slightly different. So neurofeedback itself is based on classical conditioning, Mm -hmm. right? Your brain is rewarding and inhibiting certain activity in the brain that eventually helps rebalance the brain. So when we're like Pavlov, Pavlov's dog, you know, Absolutely. classical conditioning concept. You got it. And so when we're in the world, right. And I'll talk specifically mm-hmm. about first responders, right. We come onto the job. We, most of us have some level of developmental trauma, right. Mm-hmm. Join the job because we've had experiences, kiddos, maybe of alcoholic parents, of losing people of some type of trauma that actually has us want to come in and help. So not all, but the majority of people have this developmental trauma. Then we're exposed to trauma ongoingly daily in our Mm -hmm. job, right? And that alters our brain. It dysregulates our brain. So we have electrical pulse activity that is the background rhythm of the human brain. We have different brain waves, that do different things. When we're sleeping, we produce a delta brainwave. When we're talking right now, we're producing a beta brainwave, right? right? Different functions for different functions, different things for different functions. And so um, our brain over time can become imbalanced, Mm -hmm. like called dysregulated. And when our brain is imbalanced, we can begin experiencing mental health symptoms, commonly anxiety, depression, trauma symptoms, sleep disturbances, simple things like brain fog, memory issues, you know, trying to do a presentation to your team and not being able to find the words, reading, audible issues, you know, loud noises in settings where there's a lot of people. And so this dysregulation exists. And so neurotherapy helps rebalance the dysregulated brain. Yeah. So to answer, To answer your question about stimulation and why it's different. So the stimulation, neurostimulation is an extremely safe, low level stimulation or current that causes blood and oxygen to be drawn to specific areas of the brain. And when we can draw blood and oxygen to a part of the brain that's not quite working well or as well as we want it to, 
what that's going to do is rebalance it, right? So like with an arm injury, right? You break your arm, right? You go to a doctor, a doctor resets it, and then you're doing rehabilitation for the arm. Maybe you use a, a TENS unit or an infrared light. And the concept behind those is to stimulate the area and the stimulation from either device just draws blood and oxygen and that helps the, the site repair. When we're talking about the brain, we're talking about nothing different than the repair to the arm. We're just doing it in a yeah. very safe and coordinated way to repair and rebalance the brain. And it and promotes neuroplasticity. It sure does. It causes it, a, a chemical process occurs. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it allows areas of the brain to regenerate, neurotransmitters to reconnect, you know, maybe the interior and posterior, the front and back of the brain to talk to one another. And that neuroplasticity, that regenerative state uh, helps us, helps us with our mental health symptoms. They begin to get less and less significant for us and we get this rebalancing and then therefore we feel. Oh my God. I remember when, and and I, and you know, uh, and some of the listeners know I went through Shatterproof, you know, a couple of years ago. And I remember when I first got down there, cause they do a, you know, Rebecca, they do a pre uh, scan of the brand then they do a post after you're getting ready to get out of shatterproof and all shatterproof uh, uh patients get neurostimulation but i remember going down there and at first i was like what are you going to shock my brain what the hell is this is this some electric shock therapy and they were like they explained it just the way you did and uh but to your point i mean i i remember doing 18 sessions of neurostimulation and and, and after about the fourth or fifth session no shit. It was like a light went on. And I was like, oh, my God. And it was coupled with all the other different treatment modalities that I was receiving down there. You know, I was, you know, doing breath work and, and yoga and, you know, acupuncture and all this other stuff down there. But it really is a game changer. Yeah. You know, it's huge. It's huge. And you're exactly right. I mean, it is not uncommon that occasionally and this is something we practice in office here in my business with the badge group. We practice the same neurostimulation treatment that they do at FHE. And that's how mm -hmm. we discovered it in the first place was through FHE. Yeah. And um, commonly clients will say, well, what's going to happen? Are you going to, you're putting electricity in my brain? And they go back to this concept of like, you know, the 60s where people's brains were getting fried. And But what you're talking about when you're talking about electroconvulsive therapy is more than 600, probably really in the, somewhere between 800 and 1200 milliamps of electricity. That is going to kill your brain. Yeah. That is going to, it's too and that much. Was the per and that was the, the purpose back then. Right. Yes. Was to calm, client, calm patients down. You got it. Yeah. But we've come but, to your point. We've come so much uh, far in, in the last, you know, yeah. you know, several decades with our technology and everything yeah and what you're talking about with neurofield neurostimulation mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about here is less than three milliamps which fda says you know less than three milliamps is safe we don't ramp our clients beyond 2.5 and again it is you are just drawing blood and oxygen at the most basic level of understanding this technology drawing blood and oxygen to areas of the brain that are specifically targeted to rebalance the brain. 
and by rebalancing, symptoms of mental health dissipate, reduce, yeah. eliminate. And that's what's beautiful about it. This we we're we know far more about the human brain than we did 10, 20 years ago, and we yeah. will moving forward. Absolutely. So it's exciting that this these types of treatments are available, particularly for our first responder population who see and experience and are exposed to so much toxicity and trauma and sleep issues just from lack of sleep for years. It's it's I remember great results. You you were in law enforcement for many years, Rebecca. And I remember you mentioned sleep. I remember wearing my four hours of sleep as some sort of badge of honor, you know. I mean, that's the culture of law enforcement. Oh yeah, I got four hours of sleep last night. I'm good to go. The reality is, is you can't sustain that. And it's it's not good for your your body long term. I know I'm, you know, people are out there working graves and all this other stuff. I understand that. I did that for years, as did you. Mm -hmm. But your body needs to regenerate. It needs proper sleep. Oh, for sure. And I think you would be able to relate to this, Pat. You know, it's like the common adage is it never happens until it happens to yeah. us. Exactly. And I see it time and time again with our population of people, right? The clients that come in, I call them coming in hot because the train derailment has already happened. Humpty Dumpty has already fallen off the, <laughs> yeah. right? And people come in and they're like, well, I, I need you to put me back together again. I've, I've got like one session, five sessions. And I, I, told people, I told people, I'm like, first of all, not realistic. Second of all, you've got to think about how long you've compromised your body, your brain, everything, your nervous system for all of these years with trauma and lack of sleep and drinking too much and, you know, breathing in meth labs at house. I mean, just all of this stuff. It's going to take a little bit to repair your brain. Absolutely. But this technology, it just is phenomenal. It, what I can do with a client doing this treatment at the same time of talk therapy is alleviate somebody's symptoms within 20 sessions. Amazing. And, and when, when somebody's coming in and they're hanging on by a thread and they don't have a year to do individual clinical counseling because it takes too long to move the needle, it's, it is phenomenal to be able to offer something like this that we can do concurrent with psychotherapy, right? Mm-hmm results we see are like what you're reporting which is anywhere between six to ten sessions clients self-report significant symptom reduction and we do measures with our clients and again same technology at yeah. FHE. yeah really, yeah very and, and i and i want to kind of swing back around to something you said earlier rebecca when you were you were talking about your experience mm -hmm. when when you were in those dark places <clears throat> about you know, the culture, you, you said, unfortunately, this still happens within organizations where, you know, you, you mentioned that when you went through what you did, okay, you know, the agency, the clinician was reporting back to the agency about all that. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, That's why we have HIPAA and all these other, you know, privacy uh, stipulations in place and confidentiality. Do you think that's one of the main reasons why? I mean, you're a clinician. You've been doing this a long time. You talk to a ton of first responders. You treat them. Do you think that's one of the reasons why that first responders are so hesitant with coming forward? Absolutely. And, and saying, oh, my agency is going to find out about, about that. I'm, they're going to take my gun. I'm going to be on a list. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, no. You know this, Pat, absolutely. 100%, you know, and some agencies are better than others. And we are working closely with several agencies here, some better than others about understanding this, particularly when you work in addiction, right? Addiction Mm -hmm. is protected under the American Disabilities Act, but we really don't have strong laws yet to protect an officer's disclosure of mental health. And that's something that I talk to the FOP often about because the FOP is such a phenomenal lobby, lobbying mm-hmm. lobbyist section, right? And they're so um, impactful in the legislature. But with there being such negative police rhetoric over the past few years, there hasn't been the opportunity to really introduce something that says, hey, cops need this because society doesn't really like the population right now. Now, hopefully, we I, I see some movement and it's getting back a little closer to that. But it's that fear, right? It's that if my agency knows they're going to fire me. And for some agencies, that's the reality. Yeah. They do and will and they won't honour federal law and then what you're relying upon a first responder who is not doing well um, psychologically neurologically to try and hire an attorney to fight the agency I know I didn't have it in me and I remember I just want to share something here that was pivotal to me because I think this is an important piece I remember there was a a line of there was like a pivotal point Uh, about two weeks before I left my job with the agency. I left. They were going to fire me. I call it a preemptive strike. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember I was standing out the front of my supervisor's office and my supervisor was a guy that I had worked with for a long time, hand in hand, and was, I would consider a friend as well, kind of like an older brother figure, somebody I trusted. And I stood outside of his office and I thought, I've got to go in and tell him I have an alcohol problem. I've got to tell him I'm thinking about taking my life. I am that bad and I'm not talking about it. And it was scaring me that I was having these thoughts. And But I literally said to myself in that moment, Pat, if I go in there and I tell him, every single person is going to know. Yeah. And I will be judged. And every single, this is what I felt, every single person who had ever said that they didn't like me or they didn't think I was a good cop or good enough or something, right, would now have evidence as to why I was a failure. And that fear stopped me from getting help. Yeah. A week later, I sat there with my gun in front of me, contemplating taking my life. Thankfully, I didn't because I had something in the back of my head, some voice within that said, you're worth it, reach out. But I I share that because I hear that story come back to me in other offices today, yesterday, a year ago, tomorrow. And we have to do something about this because there is nothing that's okay about officers who are dedicating their life to this profession and feel like they have no choice to speak up about their mental health and they would rather eat a bullet than have their agency fire them, make it public or be scrutinized. Yeah. It's yeah. A, and I know you know this, right? Yeah. It's a huge issue. 
yeah. we have to change it. We have to yeah, we, it. we do. And, 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 and I like what you said, and you're right. I mean, I, I, some agencies are better than other agencies because we, you know, Rebecca, and hopefully the listener knows cultures change are different in organizations from organization to organization. You might have an organization that's really proactive with officers about, okay, if you're suffering, you have MH issue or mental health issues, we're here to support you. Then you get other agencies, as you know, Rebecca, just suck it up. You know, this is what you signed on for. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, you, your, your backstory and my backstory are very similar, but yeah, I mean, the, I was so afraid of people uh, finding out, you know, fearful ego. A lot of it for me was ego. Uh, until I got to a point where, uh, you know, two weeks into treatment down at Satterproof, I had a buddy that I used to work for, he supervised, called me up and say, how you doing? I was doing good. He's like, do you mind if I tell people what you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If you can help somebody else. Absolutely. I wasn't afraid anymore, Rebecca. And yeah. for, and I talk to people all the time as do you and the people that are out there that are your friends that are going to give you shit about reaching out and getting treatment, you don't need those people in your life. Mm -hmm. You want people in your life that are going to champion you and say, you know, congratulations, man. Uh, I'm glad you're getting help. Yeah. You know, but to your point, what you said earlier, I mean, some organizations are better than others. And that's the thing that we have to change. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. At that time, a couple of weeks into your recovery program, when you recognize that, what do you think was the what do you think brought you to that point to be able to accept that? Was it that reality was in your face? The life raft was there and you had to take it or, or sink? I think that's a great question. I, I, I think that for the first time in, in a long time, I felt safe. Ooh. You know, I felt that I was in a community that yeah. got it. You know, I was in a community where I wasn't afraid anymore because it's all first responders there. And yeah, I felt safe. I felt that I could tell my brothers and sisters I was in treatment with anything. And I could because we were all on the same level. Yeah. You know, I went as a retired commander, but I was, we were, I was among every, everybody, you know, firefighters. And I, to answer your question, I just felt safe. I felt I was in a good place. I, I, I felt calm. My anxiety wasn't through the roof. Um, yeah. I was getting neurostimulation. Yeah. You know, I was, I was doing all these other treatment modalities and the only thing I could think of is I felt safe. I was in a safe place. Yeah. I think there's a beautiful, I didn't have the advantage of going to a treatment program. I left and had no insurance. And so my, my recovery program with the rooms of AA, which I'm phenomenally yeah. grateful. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that I know true that I hear in what you're saying is that I think that that we we shame ourselves so much particularly when addiction is at play or substance abuse we can talk addiction substance abuse whatever term right when we're when we're traumatized and we have substance issues we we fear judgment mm -hmm. rightly so we still live in a society where people think that there's something weak about us why didn't we stop drinking we're at the cause of this we destroyed everything we deserve what we get that's still the rhetoric in, yeah. in society, which is so wrong. This is a disease of the brain. It's a medical disease. It hijacks us neurologically. It's not an excuse. 
but it is an explanation. And I think, you know, secrets make us sick. We talk about this in my programming all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think when we first get into recovery, into a program, it's almost like the veil gets lifted. Mm -hmm. We now have to accept to some level that we have a problem that we're in a treatment program. Usually there are loved ones around us who now know. And that, let's say unveiling for want of a better term, I think can be a beautiful thing because I think we have the opportunity at that point to take the monkey off our back, the secret that we've been carrying shamefully for a long time. And that feeling of safety that you're talking about, I think, comes from that. Like, I know I've needed help, but now I'm getting it. And here I am in this community with 60 other first responders who get it in an environment where I can feel freely to talk about it and not be judged. And and the the one thing that, that I learned, Rebecca, and you know this, is that because now I'm I'm in the field right now trying to help people. I haven't been doing it very long, about a year and a half. But I do know that from personal experience that when you're in treatment, when I was in treatment, I was in like a bubble. I was in a safe space. I was getting the best treatment out there. But the real work begins when you leave. Sure does. Yeah. I remember being at Fort Lauderdale Airport and I was like, holy shit, I've been in treatment for a month, a little over a month. Now I need to apply what I've learned to the world or to my world. And, you know, I talk to people sometimes and, and as do you, and especially people, you know, that end up going back to treatment for whatever reason, I'm not judging them. I'm I'm glad you're reaching out again, but it's like, okay, what didn't you do? What didn't you apply that you learned in treatment? Mm -hmm. And, And I'm not trying to judge people or anything like that, but as you know, Rebecca, uh, being in recovery and I'm in recovery, it, it, it it's hard work. Do yeah. I have bad days? Absolutely. But my good days accepts my bad days because I, I go back to what I learned in therapy. Okay. I need to reach out to somebody if I'm, I, I'm having a shitty day. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I, and I know you know that you're a clinician. Sure. You know, I look at treatment as like a triage, you know, mm-hmm. as the immediate stuff. Okay. We're going to handle the immediate stuff. But long-term, you have to do the work. Yeah. I have this great kind of like, I'm an analogy kind of person. So like analogies. I've been sending people to treatment programs, not just FHE. I'm not employed by FHE. I'm a clinician. Now I refer a lot of people there because it's the best program in the country. And until something else supersedes that for crisis clients. Rebecca is not a paid spokesman for FHE. <laughs> You know, I'm a clinician. It's not appropriate for me to work for a facility, of course. But, you know, I mean, it's just, it's um, it's one of these things, you know, where I look at clients that come out of that program and or while they're doing the hard work in the program. And I say to them, I go, it's like, it's like a tornado's come and ripped your house. You have yeah. no foundation, no walls, nothing. Treatment is building a strong foundation. You're going to go down there for 30, 45, 60, 90, whatever amount of days you're going to stay, you're going to get sober. You're going to get some neuro for your brain. You're going to get medication stabilization. You're going to get insights and you're going to build the concrete foundation of your house. But when you get out, you only have the foundation of the house. It's not going to protect you from weather. I love that. You can't invite people over. It's cold. It's hot. It doesn't have a bed. It's not comfortable. 
you then have to work in aftercare and aftercare is the absolute jam of recovery and it is the hardest part because you're around all of your old triggers Absolutely. You're around all of your old haunts bad behaviors and you you have to be plugged in to aftercare programming immediately and stay plugged in and we know that from you know, when clients relapse and they go back down there, majority of time, it's because either there's a level of denial or lack of acceptance of the disease. And they're no. still allowing themselves to think one day in five years, I'm healed. It's a miracle. I can drink again. Not the way your brain works. No, no. Reverse button. So, you know, that's just, a, it's just kind of, a I love that. I love that. I, I love that yeah. analogy. I'm better now. I was in treatment for a month. I can do whatever I want. No, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no. It's It's a a, disease. I think it's important for the listeners to understand that this disease is neurological. Yeah. So it hijacks the pleasure and reward pathways of the midbrain. What does that mean? Fight, flight, freeze, sympathetic nervous system, Mm -hmm. and then the emotional centers of the brain are what get hijacked in the disease. And what goes offline and is deactivated is your prefrontal cortex. And that's where we make decisions. That's why we can't think to ourselves, I need to go to the liquor store and get more alcohol. I probably should not get into this 3,000 pound vehicle because I've had too much to drink. Because that part of the brain is not lit up yeah. in the person that's in the disease. So not an excuse. And we never condone that. You must yeah. be accountable and responsible. But I think it's imperative that people begin to understand this as a disease. What biologically, neurologically, and physically is going on that causes us to become a-holes not think things through, destroy every relationship and also every ounce of self-worth that we have. Because you and I didn't do it because we thought, you know what, I want to be in my late 40s, early 50s and be a raging alcoholic and not be able to drink for the rest of my life. And right, it's not a dream for us. Yeah, Yeah, I remember when I I got done with treatment, I went on a, I call it an apology tour because- I, I, no, I, I did. I mean, I was, I was apologizing to you know, because I, it just took over, you know, and I realized that it was the addiction that, that took over in the alcohol and, and I'm not making excuses. I mean, I'm just saying I had to apologize for, to a lot of people and say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm better now. And especially my kids putting them through, yeah. you know, all the calls of suicidal ideation and all this other stuff. So well essential you know but yeah. it does there's no rush you know getting sober is a process and we're so desperate yeah in the early days to get more days and somebody told me once in the rooms of recovery yeah it takes a long time to get a day yeah absolutely and then you got to celebrate those days i mean i was just on a call this morning with a guy who's you know 17 years sober and no matter if you're a month sober 17 or 17 years i'm sorry 17 years it's an accomplishment of course it is you know you know it is a huge accomplishment so you need to celebrate those rebecca where can people find you 
So uh, our website's under construction, but eventually will be available at www.thebadgegroup.com. Right now, you can find some information under our nonprofit leg of our organization, which is called Badge to Badge, the number two. So www.badge, the number two, badge.com. Now, you're going to be speaking at a, I think it's a little event in Vegas coming up. It's just a tiny event. I'm just kidding. It's a huge event. It's the uh, annual FOP conference, Fraternal Order of Police Conference in Las Vegas at the MGM, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to be talking and speaking. And for those of you who don't know, the FOP conference, the annual conference, is kind of like a big deal. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of first responders from all around the country in the world too. I mean, internationally people come into that and you're going to be one of the speakers, Rebecca. I know I am uh, <laughs> I'm very honored. You know, I'm the Colorado wellness director and have been for several years. And, um, you know, I am honored to be presenting on neurotherapy. Yes. So we're going to talk about <laughs> neurostimulation. Neurotherapy. Uh, neurotherapy. Um, <laughs> at the at the conference so that's going to be for the listener next month i i think it's uh the third i think it's a whole week but uh the 13th i don't have a calendar in front of me it is it is the um fifth it's no the 14th through the 17th of yeah so if you it's of august 2023 next month and so for the listener out there if you want to see rebecca and come to a great conference uh, go online, search FOP uh, Las Vegas. It'll come up. Rebecca, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Say a listener is out there struggling, a first responder, not necessarily a cop, could be fire, EMS, whatever. And they're struggling now, right now with maybe mental health addiction. You know, what would you tell them? Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I, would, I would just tell them, look, there are safe resources out there. Um, you know, we're not a 24 hour, you know, support, um, you know, phone support, crisis support kind of business or organization. There are organizations out there. And I would say, you know, if people don't trust their agency to go to them to get help, then there are other resources. Right. And so if somebody's struggling with PTSD, when somebody's struggling with, with addiction, you know, FHE is a great point of call. Go to their website, talk to one of their intake people. They're not associated with your agency, you know, or find a resource in your area. Look for culturally competent. Very important. <laughs> yes. Just because somebody's second cousin's ex-wife's ex-roommate who changed their printer cartridge was a law enforcement officer does not mean somebody is culturally competent. So there is actually a movement right now, Pat, of cops retiring and becoming clinicians. And that's our entire organization. Yes. And so I'm all for that. I think I think if you're out there and you have any interest in giving back in any way, do your clinical counseling master's program, go into a role where you're serving, you know, your first responders in a slightly different way. It's rewarding. It's needed. Absolutely. Say, reach out, find your people, get help. Don't wait until Humpty Dumpty's uh, fallen apart. Absolutely. Rebecca Allenson, it's been an honor, my friend, having you on the show. You are amazing. Oh, thank you, Pat. Uh, 
I would love, love to have you back on. And I look forward to checking you out and meeting you in person, checking out your speech, uh, FOP next month. And I want you to take care. Everything we talked about folks uh, is going to be up in the show notes, uh, um, how to reach out to Rebecca, all that good stuff, as well as a link to FOP. Rebecca, God bless you. Thank you for being on. Thanks, Pat. Have a great day.